4 from verse 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church and her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, we've come uh, this morning to the last uh, of the series of sermons uh, on the book of Colossians. Uh, originally, it was supposed to only go for four weeks, but, uh, but I got a little bit carried away. So this is the last and then next week uh, Fred's going to carry on uh, his sermon from a few weeks ago uh, on Romans uh, chapter 8 and, and then after that we're going to be looking at the book of Leviticus for about nine weeks. But, uh, but here in this last section of Colossians Paul's primary concern is the spread of the gospel. Uh, we've you know, seen various things about that already this morning. We saw that uh, that video about the gospel going out to that community for the very first time, people who'd, who'd never heard the gospel before. And here in this passage, Paul is concerned about God's missionary zeal to reach all nations and to draw people from all nations to himself. And Paul kind of works it out, I suppose, in our lives in three particular ways, uh, three implications, if you like, of God's missionary heart. You might have come across Elizabeth Gilbert's book, I've mentioned it before, Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, well, this morning we've got Pray, Pray, Speak. Uh, it's not uh, how our relationship with God is established, but how, if you like, God's missionary zeal is worked out in our lives. How is it worked out? It's by praying and praying and speaking. The first instruction that Paul gives uh, there is in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. That seems like a pretty straightforward kind of instruction, doesn't it? 
devote yourself to prayer. And yet, in some ways, working that out in our lives is harder than it might at first appear. If you say to someone, devote yourself to prayer, immediately immediately they seem to think, I need to get up very early in the morning and I need to pray for a long amount of time. Have you ever noticed how that seems to happen? You know, if you say to someone, let's start a prayer meeting, they'll say, let's do it at five o'clock in the morning and we'll pray for three hours. For some reason we think that long prayers and early prayers are more godly. And we think that short prayers are ungodly. But even in our relationships with each other, we have a kind of a variety, don't we? We have long conversations and we have short conversations. Imagine if every conversation that you had with somebody you love, imagine if every conversation had to be a long conversation. Can you please pass the salt? What do you think about salt? That's good salt that you've bought me. You know, do you always buy that salt? Or perhaps could we buy another salt next time? It would be tedious, wouldn't it, if every conversation with someone you love had to be a long conversation. If all our conversations were short, though, that would be tedious as well. Now, we need a kind of a mixture, a diversity. We need long conversations to get to the harder things and we need quick conversations to... You know, when we need things all of a sudden or when we're really thankful about what someone has done for us. And it's the same in prayer. We should have long prayer and we should have short prayer. Paul's uh, emphasis here in this command of the Colossians is not about the length of prayer or about the earliness of prayer, but it's about our commitment to it and about our devotion to it. You might say instead, pray all the time and keep praying. That's what Paul is saying. Whether it's long or short, just keep praying. Pray all the time. We should pray in the morning. We should pray through the day. We should pray at night. You can pray in the shower in the morning. You can pray uh, in the car as you drive along. You can turn off the radio. Uh, a friend of mine once initiated me into prayer. I, I can't remember what he called it. It was like pray driving or, or something or prayer driving or something. And we were, we were driving along and we were taken in turns to pray. Uh, I, was, I found it a bit difficult, to be honest, to pray while I was driving and to focus on what was happening. But it's a great thing to do, isn't it? To, to pray while you're driving. And another friend of mine, he dropped me off at the airport once in Melbourne and as we were getting to the terminal, all of a sudden the conversation stopped and he started praying. You can pray as you do the dishes. You can pray as you make a cup of tea. You can pray at your desk at work. You can pray on the toilet. You can pray wherever you want. It doesn't need to be long. You can pray quickly, Lord, thank you for those beautiful flowers. Lord, I'm struggling here. Please give me strength. Father, I'm struggling to be patient. Please help me to be patient with this person. Lord, I shouldn't have said that just now. Please forgive me and help me to be humble enough to admit my mistake. We need to get out of our heads that short prayers are ungodly. Short or long, we should be committed to prayer all the time. Paul says the manner of our prayer, our constant prayer, should be watchfulness and thankfulness. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful 
and thankful. In the New Testament, watchfulness is often associated with the coming of Jesus. Jesus says, watch out, be, be awake, be alert, I'm coming back. And it seems that that's kind of what Paul is picking up on here. We should be devoted to prayer as we watch and as we wait for Jesus to come back. Watchfulness to pray that the kingdom of God would come on this earth. Watchfulness to pray that all the things that Paul has talked about in Colossians so far, that those things will be worked out in our lives as we, as we look for Jesus to come back. We pray that God would help us you know, to, to work out the gospel in our lives. But not just watchfulness, also thankfulness. Whenever God answers those prayers, whenever God does things even that we haven't prayed for, Paul says, be thankful and rejoice at what God has done. Be devoted to that. Be devoted to prayer which is watchful and thankful. One uh, writer described it like this, Christians are to keep awake, looking out on the sleeping world which is the object of God's love, is also to the object of his people's devoted, steady and thorough prayer. Isn't that a great description? That while the world is sleeping we should be awake and being awake we should pray. Pray that God might do what he has promised to do and work the gospel and his missionary heart into the world. So God says to us, what are we to do? We're to be devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Paul then moves on to the second area of prayer, Uh, He asks for prayer again, this time for himself and for his fellow ministry workers. So in verse 3 he says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul says pray for us. Who is the us? It's at least... Paul and Timothy who are writing the letter together but it probably also includes the fellow gospel workers that Paul goes on to mention. So in the rest of the letter he mentions eight other fellow workers who are working with him in gospel ministry. He mentions Tychicus, uh, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Epaphras, Luke and Demas. All of them except Maybe Onesimus, uh, who's a slave, he's the, kind of the subject of the letter Philemon. But all of those, uh, apart from maybe Onesimus, are described as fellow workers, which is a kind of a term which is used uh, in the New Testament for people who are working kind of alongside Paul in gospel ministry, in sort of full-time gospel ministry. The New Testament is full of examples of that, of people being set aside, freed up from their normal work so that they can devote themselves to gospel ministry. Uh, One scholar reckons that the total number of Paul's collaborators is 36, a network of 36 people working with him in his gospel ministry. That's pretty serious and that's not including Peter and, and all the other apostles and all their kind of fellow collaborators. There was a huge network of people kind of employed in gospel ministry. And Paul says, make sure you pray for us that God would open a door for our message 
so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ. You see, I think that's so important to say, isn't it? Because we might easily set people aside for gospel ministry but we so easily forget to keep praying for them. You know, we've sent Graham and Linda to the other side of the world uh, to be at work in South Sudan and, and we forget to pray. We need to pray that God would open a door for the message of the Gospel in South Sudan. We've commissioned Ben to take the Gospel to houses just a stone's throw from here. We need to keep praying that God would open a door for him to proclaim the gospel. We need to be devoted to that kind of prayer. We need to be praying that prayer all the time, being watchful and thankful. We need to do that because it's God's will that people would know his son Jesus. We might feel a bit silly praying the same thing over and over again but God wants us to do that. That's how we're involved in his mission work in our world. But there's also a great irony to to Paul's request for prayer. I don't know if you noticed it but Paul asks that a door would be opened for the message of the gospel for which he is in chains. So Paul's praying that the gospel would have an open door while he himself is bound, that the gospel would be unbound while he himself is in prison. You see that same kind of irony being worked out in Philippians chapter 1. So there Paul, he writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is, being in prison, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of my brothers have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That's a strange kind of open door, isn't it? It's not the kind of open door that we'd be looking for. My idea of an open door is that I can kind of proclaim the gospel without too many side effects, you know, without any kind of real cost, that you could sort of have a conversation with someone about the gospel and that it would all go swimmingly and that there's no effects for me. But Paul's vision of an open door is quite different to ours. His vision of an open door is that the gospel itself might have an open door while for him the door is kind of quite closed. For him he's in chains. An open door for the gospel to be proclaimed might still be, might still involve great cost for us. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years, but it may be that in the next decade or so that God will open up a door for prison ministry greater than we have the opportunity for doing at the moment. He might open that door because Christians all through the West will be thrown into prison for proclaiming the gospel. That would be an open door, wouldn't it? For a kind of prison ministry that our country has not seen for years, if ever. 
It might not be the kind of open doors that we would ask for, but it would be an answer to the kind of prayer which Paul is talking about here. He's not asking for his release. He just wants the gospel to go out. That makes sense then of the next request that he has, pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Or literally, it really just says that I might make it known as I must, that I might reveal it. Paul's not asking just for clarity, I pray that I might speak clearly, but it seems that he's probably asking for boldness and confidence to actually go through with it so that when the opportunities come, pray that I might actually take them up, that I might make it known as I am obliged to do. That's such an important prayer to pray as well, isn't it? You know, It's one thing to pray that God might open a door for the gospel to go out, but we need to keep praying for people that they might have the boldness to take the opportunity. What a great prayer to pray for Ben every Sunday as he goes out onto the block, not just to pray for the opportunities to preach the gospel, but to pray that when the opportunity comes that he would have the courage to take it, that he wouldn't be so discouraged by the difficulty of the ministry that he would just let the opportunity go. Or to pray the same thing for Graham and Linda, just because they're on the other side of the world and that they've already given up so many things, it doesn't mean that the same problems that face us here don't face them as well. We need to pray for them all the time, that when the opportunities for the gospel come, that they would take them. We need to be praying that constantly. We need to be devoted to praying that with watchfulness and thankfulness. Particularly when the, the cost of an open door for the gospel might be so high. But it's also an important prayer, not just to pray for people who we've sent to do evangelistic ministry, it's an important pray, prayer to pray for ourselves as well. It's so easy, isn't it? to have an opportunity for the gospel and not to take it. Paul says we ought to pray that we would make it known as we must. So we need to be in constant prayer. We need to be devoted to prayer, to watchful and to thankful prayer. We should pray for gospel workers who we've set aside for all kinds of gospel ministry. We should pray that God will give them those opportunities and that when the opportunities come that they would speak. And finally Paul turns to the responsibility that the Colossians had in their kind of gospel ministry. So their gospel ministry probably wouldn't have taken the form of Paul and his companions travelling all over the Mediterranean, uh, you know, taking the gospel to the first reaches of the earth. No, their gospel ministry was kind of situated within the life that God had given them and the places where they worked, the families that they had, the, the social context where they were. What was their gospel ministry to be like? How did they engage uh, in gospel ministry in their context? Paul gives two instructions and they are live wisely and speak wisely. 
So verse 5, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. What does it mean to be wise toward outsiders? Literally, Paul talks about walking in wisdom. So the idea is not so much... uh, you know, thinking carefully about how to speak to outsiders, but the idea is kind of a life lived, to walk in something in the Bible. It's a, it's a metaphor for living in a particular way. So live in wisdom, live wisely. What, is, what does that mean? Well, wisdom has already been a really significant theme all through the book of Colossians. Maybe the most significant uh, is all the way back in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul says, For this reason, since we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this, why? In order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in his inheritance. Or listen to this from from chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Or chapter 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, Colossians has been all about wisdom, all about the wisdom of God's God's wisdom in the Gospel and about how that works out into our lives. So when Paul says, walk wisely, he's saying, walk in the Gospel, in the light of Jesus Christ. Work out all these things that I've been writing to you so far about in this letter. It means to live out the good news of the Gospel every day, to see to it that no one takes us captive by deceptive philosophies. It means to fix our eyes on Jesus at the right hand of God. It means to to, to work the Gospel into our marriages and in our workplaces and our families. It means to live out... uh, the the fullness that we have in Christ purchased for us in our redemption. It means to live a life eminently grounded in Jesus Christ. That's broader than just avoiding certain sins. It's broader than just saying, you know, I'm not going to swear or... Uh, I'm not going to get smashed with everyone else on Friday night. I'm not going to steal pens from the stationery cupboard at work. You know, those things might be part of it. But if that's, if that's the only wisdom that we live out in our lives, then that just looks like legalistic self-righteousness. We need the, the fullness of the Gospel to, to kind of invade our lives and to be worked out and to be shown in the way that we act toward outsiders. We need to live lives of evident humility before the throne of God. People need to be able to see that we're broken, crushed people. We need to live lives which model the grace of God, his compassion and his mercy to us. 
when we were still sinners, when we were his enemies. Tim Keller, uh, in his book on work, tells the story of a woman who, uh, who turned up to his church a few weeks in a row and he kept noticing this woman who would come and then sort of quickly hurry out the back door uh, before there was a chance to speak to anyone. And one day he kind of uh, managed to approach her and, and he asked her who she was and why she had started coming to the church and she told him this story. Keller writes, she worked for a company in Manhattan and not long after starting there she made a big mistake that she thought would cost her the job. But her boss went into his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost uh, some of his reputation and his ability to manoeuvre within the organisation. She was amazed at what he had done and went in to thank him. She told him that she'd often seen supervisors take credit for work that she had accomplished, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for something that she'd done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. He was modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. Finally, he told her, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That's why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? You see, that story perfectly demonstrates how we need to live lives shaped by the realities of God's work for us in the Gospel. It's not just about avoiding certain sins. I mean, it is that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. It's so much more comprehensive than that. We need to live lives which model the grace of God But Paul also goes on to say, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, the reason so that you may know how to answer everyone. The idea uh, of Paul's instruction there seems to be that our words ought to be gracious words, Uh, you know, maybe modelling the graciousness of God to us, but they should also be not just gracious but also fitting and wise uh, that's the idea of salty words, you know, words seasoned with salt. The Greeks apparently often used to talk about unsalty words, which kind of meant boring, uh, and, and the Jewish rabbis would often talk about wisdom in terms of saltiness. So it was a kind of a way of being wise and interesting. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying we should speak gracious and kind words, but also words which are, which are fitting and which address the person where they're at. Uh, you know, you might think of that answer that that guy gave in that workplace. You know, wh- you know, why have you done this for me? Well, it's because Jesus took the blame for me and sometimes that enables me to take the blame for other people as well. What a great answer. What a gracious and wise and kind of poignant answer. That's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to... I can't, I can't think of a time when I've given such a good answer... Uh, I don't know, maybe you've given an answer like that to somebody. It's hard to do. It's hard to give such good answers to questions that people ask about why we do the things the way that we do. But I think it's true also to say that the more that we 
understand the Bible, the more that we study the, the Bible in all its richness, the more we understand the Gospel in all its diversity and all of its depth, the better equipped that we are. You know, you couldn't have given an answer, that, that guy couldn't have given an answer like that to, to his work colleague if he hadn't thought about the way that the Gospel works out in his workplace. If he hadn't have been motivated to take the blame because Jesus had taken the blame for him. So we need to spend time this is what we do every week, isn't it? But, but we need to spend time understanding the gospel and then thinking about how that influences the way that we live. How does the grace of God work out in my life? What does that look like in my situation as an employer, as a, as a businessman, as a, as a parent? We need to live wisely and we need to speak wisely. And Paul says we need to do it all the time. He says we need to make the most of every opportunity. He says that our words should always be full of grace and that we should be ready to answer everyone, every opportunity, all the time, every person. Dick Lucas, a preacher, writes, there's never a time, according to Paul, when our responsibilities to the outsider can be out of mind. In that way, I suppose, we imitate the relentlessness of God who persevered in seeking us at every opportunity and every time. So how do we live out the implications of God's missionary zeal for the world? We do it by being devoted to prayer, constantly praying, being watchful and thankful We do it by praying for those people that we've sent out in gospel ministry, praying that God would open a door for their message and that when the the door is open that they would take the opportunity and make the gospel known. And finally we do it by living out the wisdom of God in Christ, in our lives, in our context and always speaking and explaining our lives with wise and gracious words about the gospel. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you have pursued us with your grace and your patience and your kindness. Lord, thank you that you've been relentless in seeking us and presenting the gospel to us and showing us our sin, but also showing showing us your willingness to receive us. Lord, thank you that so many of us have heard the gospel and have understood it and have embraced Jesus and have put our trust in him. And Lord, we pray that having received Christ and having been saved from death and brought to life, we pray, Lord, that we would have that same missionary zeal that you have showed toward us. We pray that that you would put on our hearts to constantly be in prayer, be devoted to prayer, constantly waiting and watching and being awake as we wait for the return of Jesus, as we seek to live out the ramifications, the implications of the gospel in our lives. Lord, help us to pray all the time for for your kingdom to grow through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to keep praying for those who we've sent out. Lord, we want to pray this morning for Graham and Linda. Lord, thank you that 
uh, we've been able to send them and they've been able to go to South Sudan, but Lord, we pray that as they're there doing amazing medical work, Lord, we pray that you would open the door for the gospel to be preached and that people who have never understood or who have never heard might hear the gospel for the first time and believe and that that nation would be transformed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to bring Ben before you as well with the the difficult but important work that he does here in Kings Meadows. Lord, thank you for his ministry. Thank you for his willingness to do that. But Lord, please open a door for him to proclaim the gospel. And give him the strength, Lord, to take those opportunities and to make the gospel known. Lord, be with each of us in the lives that we live. Help us to be wise in the way that we live. Help us to model the grace that you've shown to us. And give us the wisdom, Lord, to be able to explain what we're doing in a winsome and gracious way. Lord, we want to ask these things of you, not because... We're interested in growing the church, our church, but Lord, because we know that there are millions of people in our world who don't know Jesus and have never bowed the knee to him. And so, Father, we pray that you would do it for his name's sake. Amen.